In the second part of the interview, family, culture, archaeology, psychology, politics, business and being a Hellene, Ellie continues about the return of the Parthenon sculptures to Greece, coinciding in 2021 with the 200 years anniversary of the independence revolution of the Hellenes from the Ottoman Empire. Her activities with the World Hellenic Interparliamentary Association and the Justice for Cyprus movement, Turkey's future based on current aggression towards Greece and Cyprus, and what history means and how it affects the future of a nation. Well, what Lord Elgin found were the Parthenon sculptures. By axing them, he turned them into marbles. Well, yes, I mean, he, yes, and this has been a, a very tricky area that we've tried to, we tried to sort of um, recreate the narrative. What, what they've done by removing them from the building and displaying them in pieces is, is it, it serves their, some of their arguments, you know, they call them the marbles, they call them, and they, and they often, they've, you know, sent a piece off to the Hermitage in, in the Russia and the piece off to the, you know, and, and really what they're, what they're doing is trying to sort of say, oh, look, you know, they're individual sculptures, when in fact, they're not at all individual sculptures. They were conceived by Phidias as one, Uh, the, the the frieze is one artwork and it's and it's part of the building it's not these pieces were part of the building not external things stuck onto the building they were carved out of the the lintel the, the metal these are part of the structure of the building and they're not one marble you can't they're not supposed to be displayed individually they're not an individual piece of artwork they are a continuous freeze as great Jeffrey Robertson describes them as a is that like a showreel a film reel if you like a, of a you know sequential um, narrative of, of the story and history of Athens so um yes they they call them the sculptures like because they want to you know reframe them as all oh, these pieces uh, because they don't want to give them back basically so we know that that's wrong in my opinion a marble Is a material. Uh, these are definitely sculptures. I prefer to call right. them sculptures out of respect to our ancestors. But they display them like it is a product of something they should be proud of. Maybe we should consider approaching uh, the returning of the Parthenon sculptures to Athens and the Acropolis Museum as part of uh, the UK's effort or some of the UK citizens to decolonize their history. Because even though Great Britain back then was not having under its authority Greece or the geographical region of Greece, still they acted as Greece was their colony and they just removed pieces of our history, of our heritage without our permission. Well, correct. I mean, at that period, we were still part of the Ottoman Empire and Lord Elgin was the ambassador of um, England to the um, to the Ottoman Empire uh, and he was in charge of, of, of the province of Athens, basically. So um, there was no, I mean, he didn't have authority, but at, at that time, the Ottoman Empire was crumbling and um, this was in 1802. So... 
in that ensuing uh, 20 years be between uh, when Elgin arrived, it actually took him two years to, um, uh, his workmen, two years where the scaffolding was up and they were bribing the governor, uh, the, the Ottoman governor, the voivod, to, to um, the governor of the city of Athens, um, and to turn a blind eye. Um, so there was no real authority um, and he abused his position as ambassador, you know, ambassadorial um, diplomatic immunity. Uh, so there was no um, there was no external authority to say, look, you know, hey, you can't do this. Uh, and of course, you know, in eighteen twenty one was the revolution, and then the Greek state was formed. But by that stage, the marbles were um, the, the sculptures were already in England. Uh, they were sold to the British. The British government bought them from Lord Elgin in 1816. So that was five years before the revolution. So unfortunately, the timing wasn't uh, wasn't good for Greece. And uh, one of the other timing issues that hasn't been good for Greece is the UNESCO Convention, which uh, which deals with property after 1970. So the Parthenon sculptures don't fall under the UNESCO convention, unfortunately. However, the Parthenon sculptures are the logo of UNESCO and they are the number one item on the agenda um, at every uh, biannual um, intergovernmental meeting. So it, it's the number one unresolved issue for UNESCO. Um, but, you know, there are... It's just a, it's a very complex way. So there are different strategies uh, in play uh, that have to be um, undertaken by, by Greece and but the work has to be done in the UK because that's where the sticking point is in the UK. So it's quite complicated. Next year we celebrate 200 years from the independence of Greece by initiating our revolution against the Ottoman Empire. It would have been very nice as a gift to have back the sculptures of Parthenon in Athens commemorating the 200 years of the independence of Greece. I understand that it is hypocritical for a modern government to make claims of past mistakes, of past political mistakes. But one wonders what it's going to take for the UK to return the Parthenon sculptures to Greece. Yes, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the 200-year anniversary is next year and, uh, you know, there are many people all around the world that would like to see this reunification happen next year. And given that, you know, with the Brexit uh, issue at the moment and... Uh, the reputation of, of the UK around the world is, you know, that is, is not as good as it could be at the moment. And it's kind of a really good opportunity for, for the UK to be magnanimous and to, as a gesture of goodwill, to return these, uh, these sculptures as uh, when I was referencing location before, I mean, that's very, that idea is very pertinent to the Parthenon sculptures. I mean, uh, one of the analogies we're using is Stonehenge. I mean, if we were to take, remove all the horizontal lintels of Stonehenge and bring those stones to Greece and put them in a museum, 
what meaning do they have? I mean, it rent, they're meaningless in a museum in Athens and, and the monument in the location in England is also meaningless. It looks ridiculous if half the stones are missing. It's completely out of context. And so the same is true of the Parthenon sculptures. I mean, they are in their location. They are meaningful. Um, they, are, they are quarried out of pentelic marble, which was quarried from um, Mount Penteli and, and carried up the Acropolis and carved in situ on the building. I mean, they are completely meaningless in the Duveen Gallery in the British Museum where they are displayed the wrong way around, actually. They're just, it's just wrong on, on every level, legal, artistic, moral, it's just wrong. So, um, yes, I mean, we would like to see them back and, and I think the goodwill that England would receive um, would be unbelievable. And, in fact, Greece has offered to send in their place a rotating exhibition of the best of the best of their other objects, you know, on it to, 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 you know, to, as, a, as a gesture of goodwill and thanks. So, really, it's a... The Greeks are proposing a win-win situation. So we hope that the UK will see that really it's the right thing to do and at some point they will do the right thing. That's what we're working towards. I feel quite privileged of not being in your position because I can say openly what I think. I've been to the British Museum and there was nothing British there. No, true. Well, I mean, look, they call themselves a universal museum. So, look, there is a place for museums like the British Museum, like the Louvre, like the Hermitage, like the Met Museum in New York, and I've been to all four of those museums, and they are an outstanding repository of world history. There's no doubt about that. And you know, it's also true that there are some things in their collections that possibly would have been damaged in the countries that they came from, given, you know, the wars through the, the Middle East of the last 20, 30 years. I mean, that's the cradle of civilization. So many of the earliest stuff is from these regions. But it's not to say that, you know, not to throw a blanket over all of this and say these countries can't look after their items. So there is a place for, for universal museums of this type, but there are also some key pieces in these collections that are so um, symbolic of the country's cultural heritage. They are pivotal to the country that they came from and they are completely meaningless in this repository. And the Parthenon marbles meet those criteria that on every on every possible level they are completely meaningless in london and they are full of meaning in athens as a, as the entire frieze together should be and so there are exceptions and we believe that the parthenon sculptures are an exception You've been very active in many frauds, not only in terms of the return of the Parthenon sculptures, uh, which is uh, a cultural, a historical and a national issue, but you have been also participating at the delegation with the World Hellenic Interparliamentary Association just to connect uh, Greece with the Greek diaspora. 
What has your experience been there? Well, it's a great organisation. It's about, I think it's about 12 to 15 years old and it was founded by an Australian politician called John Pandasopoulos. Um, he so basically um, it's a it's a, an association of parliamentarians from around the world uh, who are of Greek origin. So they can be federal and state legislatures, and they meet in Athens every year. So there's usually about I've been to the last three or four. There's usually about fifty delegates from around the world, and they come together and they're briefed at very high levels from the Ministry of Defence, Culture Ministry. They meet the Prime Minister, usually meet the President, and they're briefed on the current Hellenic issues, so that when they go back to their um, home countries. Uh, and they are participating in their parliaments, in their legislatures, they can be aware of Greek issues and advocate for Greece in their parliaments, you know, according to their country's foreign policy uh, issues and things. But they are, you know, friends of Greece, ambassadors of Greece in, in uh, legislatures around the world. So it's a, it's a wonderful organisation. And I went, obviously I'm not a parliamentarian, but I went as a non-voting observer and I gave papers on the Parthenon campaign. So I was able to brief them directly on the Parthenon campaign. So um, it's a great, uh, great organisation. One of the many um, organisations in the diaspora that work for, for Greece and Cyprus. We haven't really talked about what you do by participating in the Justice for Cyprus movement, which is your connection to your paternal birthplace, Cyprus. Yes. Well, uh, as you know, the invasion in 1974 was a horrific event in the history of Cyprus. Um, I was a very young girl. I remember the distress it caused my my family, my father on the on the news. And then in 1976, this uh, this organisation was formed, and my father was one of the founding members. It was called the Justice for Cyprus. It was a worldwide organisation. American Cypriots and Australian Cypriots and English Cypriots met in Cyprus for the first conference. And um, and I found a photo. The, I mean, my Archbishop Macarius was still alive then. He was still the president. Yes, I've got a photo of uh, my father next to President Macarius as part of the delegation. So, And then my father was instrumental in founding the Cypriot community in Melbourne. He was one of the original founders. Um, he was a guarantor for the first loan where they bought their community centre in the city in CBD. And they did a lot of fundraising for the refugees that were arriving in Australia after the invasion where, you know, as you know, Half the population became refugees, so many migrated to England, Canada, America and Australia. And my father was very civic and, and he brought you know, 50 to 100 people that he knew from Cyprus. He helped them. He made sure they enrolled in English classes. He, he gave them work in his restaurants and then he helped them find other jobs. He introduced people and organised marriages and things. He helped so many people. And I guess that civic um, responsibility and sense of civic duty was really, um, I witnessed that firsthand. And so I always felt that uh, that was, that was modelled to me and I modelled that to my own sons and I decided to be a person of action and not just think these things but to actually 
roll up my sleeves and, and do things. So I've attended uh, the last couple of last few conferences in Cyprus and um, I'm very active on social media through LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook on talking about the Cyprus problem and the issues in the Eastern Mediterranean with Turkey. So, um, yes, I mean, both these issues, the Parthenon and the Cyprus problem are, are were with me from a very young age, had a very profound effect on me, and I just felt like I wanted to be an activist and actually speak out and do something to fix these problems and not just sort of sit at home and lament um, lament them without, you know, doing something to, to, to do my part to help solve them. What happened to Cyprus back in 1974 is, and the current situation, having a country split in two, and actually the Republic of Cyprus being a member of the European Union, really makes one wonder what is the purpose of being part of the EU and the support a country can get and you have this uh, president of Turkey creating actually renewing issues that did not exist or that were long forgotten. Um, One wonders what the future in Cyprus is going to be. Look, this is absolutely true. I mean, we're part of the European Union and, of course, um, you know, there are different views within the European Union and it seems for the last 10, 15 years, especially with uh, Mr Erdogan, that um, some countries in Europe uh, have been, you know, favouring a strategy of appeasement. But, you know, when a bully is continually appeased, the goalposts move. And they increment, this is what, this is a, you know, this is a very big strategy and it's a successful strategy of Turkey's. They push, they push too far and so then uh, they can, so then the other person concedes a little bit and then so they gain a little bit and then they, they keep doing it. So over time they keep gaining because we don't stand up to them enough. And so, you know, there have been countries within Europe, the EU, that have, you know, and um, there's internal uh, disagreement within the EU. So of late, we've seen that France has really stepped up and have been a strong ally of Greece and Cyprus, uh, certainly this year, recent times. And also um, Cyprus and Greece have made trilateral agreements with Israel and with Egypt. And so we have alliances around the Eastern Mediterranean and, uh, you know, and, and as part of NATO, I mean, we've got one of our own NATO countries causing us a lot of problems. So this is proving to be a very sticky period for international relations and all these international mechanisms and instruments we have to solve international problems are not really working at the moment with this particular country because of or because of certain if, certain behaviors. So I think um I think Things are changing. I think people are really starting to see that appeasing this person and then, you know, I mean, 
This country has problems on every single one of its borders and it's been agitating and causing all sorts of problems in every border, vexing every single neighbour um, and causing trouble. And, I mean, it's, it's plain to see now that the emperor is wearing no clothes and it's time for everyone to stand together and say, look, enough, you know, you can't be an irresponsible international citizen anymore. We we won't stand for it. So I'm not sure what the solutions are. The international mechanisms are at play, but, you know, they only work if the participants are signatories to the treaties and the instruments and the organisations, if they abide by the rules. So if you're not a signatory, then you don't abide by the rules. If you are a signatory but you refuse to abide by the rules, you're not playing the game properly. So, you know, it's a very difficult period. It's very unstable. And I, I, I hope that people, well, I hope countries can uh, band together and, and sort it out in a, in a peaceful, constructive way. You know, in these disagreements, when a country loses face, they, you know, they, that's when they're, I think they're dangerous. So it's better if they're resolved in a way where, you know, every, you may not get everything you want at the negotiating table, but you need a durable agreement that um, is going to give the stability that, that, you know, we're looking for in the Mediterranean. Just to summarise what we discussed about... Our our roots, our history shows us our future. In the case of Turkey, its past, its history shows to all of us its future alone or with us. We cannot really consider Turkey to be seriously an ally member in NATO or a country under consideration for an EU membership when it constantly targets its allies as Greece in NATO or is targeting member states of the union it wants to join. So it's not a sentimental matter as many Europeans might see it. We are talking about political actions political decisions that make part of the history and the historical decisions of Turkey. And this should be seriously considered by current politicians in the EU. Look, that's absolutely correct. I mean, there, it, there's a fault line. The fault line of Europe between the East and the West was between, you know, Greece and Turkey. That's where... That's where historically there's been a fault line. And so, you know, Greece is on the border of Europe and, and uh, so, you know, maybe the, uh, maybe some of the other countries further west in the, in the European Union don't, uh, don't feel that it's such a threat because it's not proximate to their countries. I mean, Turkey is on our borders. Uh, they are our neighbours. And uh, we deal with um, we deal with incursions in our airspace and naval waters every single day. I mean, one of the biggest issues now in the Eastern Mediterranean is the maritime borders and the and the uh, disputes with the um, Universal um, Convention Law of the Sea and the and the and the boundaries, maritime boundaries. So these are the disputes. I mean, but this is international law and. 
international law is the best mechanism we have to resolve disputes. And so international law is international law. I mean, if you, um, it exists for a reason, you have to abide by the laws. So, I mean, you know, unfortunately, we are stuck with trying to find these resolutions and we need our allies um, to, to stand together because there's, there's, there's no other way to resolve these disputes. And so, look, it's a very fraught period and we have to stand strong and, as I said, we need our allies to stand with us. It's, a, it's, it's critical. We, we can't do it any other way. We have already shown that we honour our alliances. And what our allies should decide is not just to take sides, is to decide where their benefits lie. In this case, Greece and Cyprus are EU member states that have honoured their membership throughout all these years. And we have a country that wants to become an EU member state, but does not really see the EU as a place where they can live peacefully in harmony with the other member states. So it is evident that Turkey tries to utilize to its own benefit EU as it did with NATO to become and be a NATO member for its own regional planning. I think that's definitely true. I mean, look, I think the significant thing that Turkey has is its location, basically. It occupies a location geopolitically that's quite critical and and they know that and that's the that's the power that they that they wield I suppose over the west because they know they are the fault line between the the west and you know that very difficult region of the world you know the stands and all these you know areas where we've had so much instability and they know that they um they sort of control that area. They, uh, what they do there, their, their tactics there will affect what happens in, in the West. And so that's the power that they will. That's why the, these appeasement strategies, people, you know, the West doesn't want to upset Turkey too much. But, you know, this is not a viable um, long-term strategy, this appeasement strategy. I think that uh, Turkey has realized that uh, in terms of uh, borders, uh, it has quite a good access to many Middle Eastern countries that are of interest to many, but it doesn't have any real access to the sea. And this Correct. is its big issue. So it cannot yes. really become this regional power without having the access to the sea it really wants. This is why there is all this friction with uh, the Republic of Cyprus and with Greece. Until now, Turkey is not the regional power it wants to become. Yes, I think that's very true. So um, part of their 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 um, aggression, I suppose, in the in the in the Mediterranean is about the, the gas reserves in around Cyprus and, and but except. Those gas reserves, I mean, they're significant, but they're not hugely significant in terms of world energy. But I think more importantly, yes, it's just access to the sea. And so now I think just recently it was announced that um, 
the US is going to invest in a new port so that we don't have to rely on the on the Bosphorus. So um, that is that is a significant strategic decision and investment that's going to really bypass that need and that reliance on Turkey. And so uh, that's what we basically have to do over over time is to reduce our reliance. So if they want to be a rogue state, then, okay, they're going to isolate themselves and have, you know, two friends in the world, Qatar and North Korea and, you know, occasionally Russia, you know, whichever way the wind blows. I mean, so if we're not reliant on them, if we bypass, you know, in terms of energy and trade and all of that, then, um, you know, we can live without them. But look, I mean, that's not a good end solution. I mean, if we want world peace and world stability, somehow we have to bring them bring them along on the journey they have to if they're isolated it's not going to be it's not a good long-term strategy um I, I think the current leader is is um obviously you know not not the best leader for the country because when I think of Turkey sort of 10 to 15 years ago I think they were heading sort of, you know, they wanted to be part of the EU. They wanted to be, they were moving westwards. I mean, there's there's a lot of very good middle-class Turkish, you know, citizens that, you know, are moderate and more European. Um, they want to be part of, the, you know, the global world that we live in. So, look, you know, it really is a problem. I, I just hope that everyone can work together to find uh, we need not just a solution, but a, a solution that sticks, a durable solution. So no one will abide by a durable solution unless unless they feel uh, some equity, some fairness in it. You know, uh, it's just that the current leader is seems to not be, you know, seems to be a megalomaniac. So, you know trying to rationalize with someone that seems irrational is a, is a, is a problem i'm not really sure where his plans stem from definitely leadership is important in steering a nation in the right direction for the sustainability and the future of that nation the future does not really exist through constant frictions and no. by injustice This is what history teaches us. This is what psychology teaches us because we have embedded in us the human values. We don't really need anyone to teach us that. We know that subconsciously. We know when we do something that is wrong, that it is wrong. Nobody really needs to tell us. We know that as uh, citizens, we are responsible of our own actions, of our own decisions. And uh, Ellie, you made this evident through our discussion today. Uh, You have a life with many ups and downs, but most importantly, you prevail and you do what you think is important to you by positively affecting people around you. Thank you. <laughs> I, well, I, I really appreciate those uh, lovely words. I mean, yes, I, I, I do. Uh, as I said at the very beginning with, with my son, we, we didn't want him to feel defined by his illness, that he wasn't a victim, that, you know, he was 
a young boy, a young man with potential. Um, he had some challenges, but, you know, we looked at what he could do. And, and I look at my own life the same way. I mean, I am eternally sad that I wake up every day and I know I'm, I'm never going to see him again. But, you know, the easiest thing for me is to, you know, would be to stay on the couch and curl up in a ball and say I'm not going to, I'm not going to get up and face the day. I mean, I, you know, I feel that sad. But I think that, you know, after a while that, that doesn't really, you don't gain anything from that. And so I have to, it's been two years now, but learning to live with that sadness and, and pain but I think that's one of the things I, you know, I showed him and I thought, well, hang on, if I've, if I've taught him this, uh, then I have to live by these same standards as well. And, and I, I kind of want to show people that, you know, you can live with pain. Yes, it does hurt, but it doesn't mean you can't do things. And the same with fear. We, we can be afraid of many things, but it, that's not a bad thing. We can exist with fear and pain and all those negative thoughts and we can still, we still have the resilience to get things done and um, nothing's going to get done if you sort of just look the other way and wait for the next person to do it. And I, I learned that from, from my father and I, I really believe that, you know, I suppose in the words of John F. Kennedy, you know, um, those who, who can should do, um, do, and you have to, you know, serve your country and serve your, you know, and it's not just a nationalistic thing, serving your country. I think you serve your community. I mean, everyone can be neighbourly, even if you don't have money or time. You can help your neighbour. You can smile at people. You can do very small things. But I think everyone should be thinking about what they can do for the next person, uh, even if it's small, even if it's big. If you've got time and money and you can help in a bigger way, great. But everyone can do something, even if it's small. So that's been something that I've taught my children and that's how I live and that's why how I try to make a difference um, because we're not here forever. Thank you very much, Ellie, for being here with us today for your time and for all the messages that are brought to us through your life experience. Thank you very much, Panayoto. I've really enjoyed speaking with you today and uh, congratulations on this wonderful podcast. It's, it's, lovely to, um, it's lovely to be able to speak in English with a Greek a person and that, you know, and I'm hoping, you know, across the two countries that these podcasts will really give access and connection and engagement between the Greeks in Greece and the, and the Greeks in the diaspora. So thank you very much and congratulations and thank you for having me today. You're more than welcome. Thank you very much. And I would like also to thank the Global Greek Influence audience for staying until the end. We will be back soon with another exciting episode.